0: Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts.
1: Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts.
0: This is part two of a two-part series. Please listen to part one before continuing with this episode. This series contains discussion of suicide, homicide, crime scenes, and violence. Listener discretion is advised. This is The Fall Line. Last time on the Fall Line, we began our coverage of the 2016 disappearance and murder of Matthew Rattlesnake Grant. Matthew's aunt, Rhonda Grant Connolly told us about his childhood. Matthew was the firstborn child of Ray Grant and Eileen Rattlesnake, and they'd go on to have two children together before ending their relationship while Matthew and his sister Cheyenne were still young. Though Matthew lived the majority of his time in Alberta, Canada with his mother and his younger siblings, he also spent a significant portion of his childhood in Browning, Montana with his father, Ray Grant's relatives. That connection was important to him and to his father's family. He even spent a year of elementary school living with his grandmother, Faye, before he returned to Canada. His aunt Rhonda told us that a key characteristic of Matthew's personality was his protective feelings toward his mother and his siblings, but that he was a peacemaker, not someone who sought out violent solutions. If someone picked on his little sister Cheyenne, Matthew would speak up, but he didn't initiate conflict. A natural extrovert, Matthew was comfortable with adults and would always seek out their help when needed. A few weeks after his 20th birthday, in November 2015, Matthew moved to Browning to permanently live with his paternal relatives. He'd had that plan for a long time. Though his Aunt Rhonda was worried about him traveling in the dangerous winter weather, Matthew didn't want to wait any longer. His father, Ray, had passed away in 2010, but Matthew still had plenty of support from loved ones on the Blackfeet reservation. His large family readily received him and helped him get settled. Since Matthew could not legally work in the U.S. without all of his formal paperwork from Canada, and there was a snag in receiving it, that support was especially important. But, as his aunt pointed out, he was quick to help the family out, too. Matthew loved art, just like his father had. Where his father Ray had carved antler and worked with wood, Matthew concentrated on drawing. One of his other major hobbies was social media. One of his family members, who wrote his obituary, noted his love of Facebook. It was an easy way to keep up with family and friends spread across two countries. In the year he lived in the United States, Matthew developed plenty of close relationships. He spent most of his free time with his cousins, though he had friends outside the family too. Simply put, people were drawn to Matthew. It's something that you hear a lot about people who are being remembered by their loved ones, but it's especially true here. Matthew Grant was well-loved. People were drawn to his optimism, his infectious personality, his trusting nature, and his willingness to see the good in others are qualities we've seen mentioned again and again. And we're told those good qualities might have brought on jealousy. And that might have led to Matthew's murder. When our last episode left off, we told you that Matthew was last seen alive by his family on December 15, 2016. That Halloween, he'd turned 21, and according to his Aunt Rhonda, around that time, there were no signs of any imminent danger in his life. The family was simply looking forward to their second Christmas with Matthew, home with them in Montana. Per KRTV, Matthew was reported missing on December 15, 2016. His aunt Fonda told Rhonda that he'd left with two individuals who had picked him up in a vehicle. As Rhonda recalled, at least one young man and one young woman were present when he left. Matthew promised Fonda that he'd return later. As we told you last episode, Rhonda recalled her sister's story that, quote, a young gentleman got out of the vehicle, knocked, and asked for Matthew. Matthew jumped up, and he was in his room. Fonda asked him where he was going, and he said, I'll be right back that was the last time she saw him. When Fonda couldn't reach Matthew by phone, she began to post on social media, on Facebook, in hopes that he might see her comments on his page and answer her there. He was extremely active on the site, and he did have his phone with him when he left his aunt's home. KRTV reported that there was a storm that day in Browning, and according to Rhonda, her family, and the community members who joined them in searching for Matthew, conditions only worsened as hours, and eventually days, passed. Matthew's family expressed that they reached out to Blackfeet Law Enforcement Services to report Matthew missing, but that they had difficulty receiving official support and felt that there was a lack of concern. We did reach out to BLES for comment, but as of the time of this recording, we have not received a reply. We spoke with Rhonda about her impressions of Matthew's missing persons case in the early days. Here's what she told us. But please they didn't take it seriously.
1: They assumed you was out partying. And we told them no,
0: it's not true. Sure. Were you surprised by how difficult it was to get help? Yes I was. As we told you last episode, this left Matthew's family and friends to research how to conduct searches in extreme weather because that storm had continued. Rhonda recalled that family members were trudging through heavy snow, hanging up posters, driving to towns miles away on dangerous roads, and Rhonda herself could do nothing. As she told us, she'd just had knee surgery and her husband Gordon was in the hospital when Matthew disappeared. So she was stranded at home worrying, waiting for news. Family members near and far kept up with each other by phone and especially on Facebook. That's where Matthew's cousin, Tara, was following his case. Matthew's cousin, Tara Walker Lyons, has spoken with many news organizations since his disappearance. She recalled to KRTV that reading the posts was terrifying, especially because she was not in Montana at the time and couldn't help. She explained, quote, That sense of helplessness, I think from being far away, it was paralyzing. That is a kind of terror we cannot fathom unless you've been in those shoes. At this point, did your family start getting more help from the police department? So, who eventually stepped up
1: was um, Homeland Security Robert DeRozier and Tyson Running Wolf, He was uh, one of our um, council members for the tribe at that time. And they're the ones that start helping. And then eventually the Brownie PD stepped in and then even the sheriff department stepped up. Yeah, after like three, end of, I wanna say three weeks is when we finally start getting help from the authorities. But other than that, it was the family members that were searching for him.
0: Another thing Rhonda's family heard, in those weeks Matthew was missing, were rumors. They heard that something had happened to Matthew, but also that he'd been seen at some point in the area of Star School, possibly at a party or hanging out at someone's house. Star School is a small community less than 10 miles from Browning. The census reports that less than 70 families reside there, though as we told you last episode, those counts are often inaccurate. Matthew's family was sure that he was not off the grid partying, not all those days later. He would have called or posted on social media, but they reported everything they were told to law enforcement. They also followed up on leads themselves, reaching out to other young people who they knew or whom they were told had been in contact with Matthew.
1: And I messaged, one of the girls that he was friends with, and I asked her, Where's my nephew? And she said, I don't know. And I said, Well, I heard that you were with him the night he went missing. And she said, No, I don't know. And then she said, um, He just called me and said he was stuck. And I said, Where was he stuck? What are you referring to? And she said, In a country. She's honestly, that's all he
0: said. According to Rhonda, law enforcement eventually got information that spurred them to head toward the Star School community in search of Matthew. So
1: I want to say about the first part of the third week, my brother said, he called me, he said, Rhonda, he said the police are, um, the the police department, Browning and Sheriff Department, they're heading toward Star School. So I said, "Well, follow them, see what they're doing." And they sure enough, they went to this one location where we uh, we heard that he could have been. And the people that lived there, they wouldn't let them come in and search. They chased them off, threatened them, and they didn't have a search warrant, so they weren't able to do anything. The valuable time where he could have been, you know, probably still alive,
0: they may have, you know, been able to find him,
1: but no.
0: We'll come back to what Rhonda just said, quote, the valuable time where he could have been probably still alive. But there are other things that you need to know first. The search for Matthew continued through the Christmas holidays. On December 31st, 2016, after two weeks of searching and worrying and waiting, Rhonda got a call, but it was not the one that she'd been praying for.
1: It was December 31st. It was about... Five or six in the evening, I got a, I was home by myself because my husband, he he was the supervisor for the BIA roads department and he wasn't here at the time. And my cousin, Kurt Grant, called me. He said, Rhonda, we found Matthew. And I said, what? He said he was behind in this alley. And I said, no, it's not him. I said, are you sure? And he said, yeah. I said, no. I said, you just, you have, you know, talked to the police. And, you know, I I didn't want to believe it. I didn't want to believe it. So anyway, um, my aunt called me. She was just sobbing on the phone. She said, Rhonda, would they found Matthew. And I said, where? She said, he was right behind my house. And I said, what? And uh, she said, could you please come up? I said, Carol, I can't even walk and I can't drive. She was just sobbing, you know. It was heartbreaking because I was here alone and she was there alone. And and um, I called my brothers and sisters and they went out there and they really went let them you know, get close to the area. So the a person that lived a few houses across the alley, and they invited them in. They said, you can wait here, you know, until you find out, you know, if it is Matthew. Um, some people found him. I guess they were walking, and I thought it was a Christmas tree laying there on top of the snowdrift, and when I stopped, it was uh, Matthew. He was just going there. Um He wasn't there all that time because they searched that a few days prior to the, you know him being found
0: there. Matthew's cousin Tara told KRTV, "quote He was missing for two weeks before his body was dumped in an alleyway. And those two weeks, there was Christmas and there was a lot of pain, and so my family is still dealing with that." In that last clip, Rhonda mentioned her belief that Matthew was alive for some or most of the time that he was missing. It's not simply based on the phone ping she was told law enforcement followed or on rumors. Rhonda keeps coming back to the search. She says that she knows, that she knows her family had been through that area. It's one that she's familiar with. After all, her relative lives extremely close to the spot where Matthew was discovered. And there were other odd things about how he was found as well. And
1: then you can tell he was he wasn't there all that time because he um, he didn't he wasn't you know the snow he wasn't covered up with snow. To me, I'm thinking um, while he was missing those three weeks, I heard stories that they kept moving him, that he was alive for some time. Um, I know he was tortured, and when he was found, he was laying in a field position and his shirt was kind of pulled up around him, like someone, you know, pulled him, they pulled him, you know, out of a, you know, some type of vehicle or something. And he had ice in his hair, so I'm thinking that was still warm when I threw him in there on the snowdrift. I don't know, that's my feelings. I don't know, I, I hope not.
0: One of the possible leads that Rhonda and her family have received Concerns the type of truck that was in the area, and the time period directly preceding the discovery of Matthew's remains. And I've had several people approach me
1: and tell me that they did see a um, red pickup that night. They could hear it. And they looked out, and they did see a woman and three men standing behind a the pickup. They weren't quite sure what they were doing. And that same pickup drove by at least three more times that night. And I did tell the police, I asked them to talk to the individuals that approached me and I don't know if they ever did.
0: Rhonda also told us that she'd heard rumors that the red truck was hidden on a nearby ranch so it wouldn't be spotted by law enforcement after the sightings of the vehicle had been reported. The shock of discovering Matthew was still fresh when his family began to ask how exactly he died and what had happened to him in the weeks between his disappearance and the recovery of his remains. Did they ever give your family a cause of death?
1: The person that actually had the autopsy, he wasn't quite sure. It was from hypothermia or from his wounds. So that is one good thing, that they didn't put hypothermia
0: So it's undetermined? Yeah. To clarify, in case discussion, cause and manner of death are terms that are often used interchangeably in crime entertainment, but they have very different medical and legal meanings. As Brooke highlights here, she and Rhonda are discussing cause, that is, the injury or situation that technically caused Matthew's death. Because of multiple injuries and the effect of the weather, the cause is what's undetermined. The manner of death, which can be ruled as homicide, suicide, accidental, natural, or undetermined, is not in question. Matthew's death was ruled a homicide. Rhonda can't go into the specifics of Matthew's injuries due to the ongoing investigation. But based on information given to a family member, it was truly awful. What she and we would consider to be torture. And it's difficult for his loved ones to imagine why anyone would hurt Matthew at all. And then to find out he was put through so much, so soon after he'd come to Montana to start fresh. As hard as it was to fathom, they did hear whispers as to why Matthew had been targeted. In a 2019 interview with KRTV, the local outlet who most extensively covered Matthew's case, Rhonda said, quote, I can't trust. I don't know who was involved, but I know there was a lot involved. The rumors, it's hard. I shy away from people now. And her niece, Tara, told the outlet that, for the first time, returning to Browning made her worry. It didn't feel safe. As we alluded to in our first episode, the only motive that Matthew's family came upon was jealousy. Although one online article we found made brief reference to the idea that his death could be related to drug crime, though how there was no detail, that's not what Rhonda has heard.
1: I think I have an idea because the person that's of interest, he was jealous of Matthew. He, um it was him pretty boy. I was thinking just because, you know, uh, just from the wounds, you know, it was jealousy. That's the way I see it. And um, we have we have a general, we know who it is. Uh, people have been coming forward and we, we knew from the beginning who it was. And I don't know why they can't resolve this. I have no idea. And I, one thing that they told me is that there were so many rumors and they had to investigate each and every rumor And that's what was making it hard to try to, you know, sort out the the real facts from rumors. But I always tell them, you know, if I hear a rumor, I'm going to notify you. I'm going to tell you about each and every little rumor that I hear because there might be a hint of juice in it.
0: Rhonda says she's been told that several people were involved, including the person she identifies as jealous of Matthew, and that some of these individuals and their families are still in the area. It hurts when we see them. One of them
1: mentioned to a family member of mine, uh, "We were just kids. We were just children." Yeah, you got that right. I don't know why he call himself a child. I guess considered a child if you're 17 and 18. That, you know, to murder him and to his family to think it's okay to take and go and hide And yeah, they're not making. They're not helping him. I ran into. The the one that I heard was um, driving the vehicle when they disposed of his body behind my aunt's home. Um yeah. She stared me down. I work on Browning and, you know, I that you don't dare say anything or do anything. As I was walking in, she was standing there and she just stood there staring at me and I just you know, I stared back. I think you're not
0: gonna <laughs> let you you know because I'm not <laughs> a bit
1: afraid of you or your family.
0: Rhonda says that she believes that others know exactly what happened to Matthew, but that they fear coming forward because of the threat of violent reprisal. Other people have disappeared, been beaten, even been murdered. She understands that witnesses may be afraid, but Rhonda hopes that might change. As time goes on, people might uh, be more willing to come forward. I pray they do. Matthew's mother had him taken back to Canada for burial and for a memorial with his Canadian relatives. She passed away only six months after his death. Rhonda tells us that the knowledge of what Matthew had gone through was too much for her. Their families were mourning again and Matthew's killers still remained at large. Nearly one year after Matthew's body was found, the FBI announced a $10,000 reward in his case. The Salt Lake City office has charge of his case, and charge of the cases of a number of other reservations outside of Utah. Rhonda told us in a phone call after her initial interview that she hopes that one day, one day soon, there will be a closer office that more directly serves Montana, and the reservation populations who represent an outsized number of the regions missing and murdered. We reached out to the Salt Lake City FBI's office for comment regarding Matthew's case, and they provided us with the following statement to read on the show. Quote, the FBI continues to investigate the 2016 murder of Matthew Grant and is still offering a reward of up to $10,000 for information leading to an arrest in the investigation. The FBI never forgets victims of such egregious crimes and reaffirms our commitment to seek justice for victims and their families. We know someone out there knows something, and we hope with the passage of time and this reward, we can provide answers and some measure of justice for Matthew's family. We encourage anyone with information concerning Matthew's death to call the Salt Lake City FBI at 801-579-1400. End quote. Per local reporting, the Blackfeet Law Enforcement Services faced criticism for Matthew's family, and after Ashley lowering Heavy Runner's disappearance just six months after his death, there was increased pressure. In 2019, then-BLES Chief Jess Edwards went on record regarding both Matthew's and Ashley's cases. He said, quote, we, the Blackfeet Law Enforcement, Never, ever stopped working Ashley's case or Matthew Grant's. We're still following the leads. The Independent Record wrote that, quote, However, Edwards is quick to say that he needs more resources. His department's tasks include emergency response on a reservation larger than Delaware, helping patrol the U.S.-Canada border, and managing the summer crush of visitors to Glacier National Park, all with just 24 sworn officers, end quote. As Matthew's cousin Tara Walker Lyons told KRTV in 2019, it was not just a matter of resources, but of the complexity of systems involved in policing the reservation. She said, quote, I know that on the reservation, the issue really comes down to jurisdiction. I know that having a clear role and having a clear protocol and set of policies related to missing and murdered indigenous people is important. It's almost paramount at this point. Rhonda tells us that it's not just about law enforcement funding or jurisdiction, but also coverage for cases and for sustained funding for community initiatives for the missing. Rhonda has become an advocate in the larger MMIP movement, Missing and Murdered Indigenous People, since Matthew's death. It would be a lot different if he
1: wasn't a native, put it that way. They don't take them, they don't take, one of our um, native ladies, men go missing. Do you ever see them on national TV? Oh, so-and-so's missing? No, you never do see a native. A picture of a native or their name on national television news. And that would make a big difference. It needs to change, it needs to change because there's so many. Right now, I have a list of um, people from Browning alone, men and women that were murdered. 63 of them, three, four of them, out of the 63, four of them, finally, the families did see justice, but the rest of them, no. So we have that many murders running around Browning alone, and that's not only here, it's everywhere, all these other reservations. It's like an epidemic or something, I'm not quite sure how to put it, but... Yeah. We don't matter. That needs to change. Needs to make a difference.
0: Rhonda worries about the lack of coverage for Indigenous men, who, like men of all races, tend to get less coverage than women. When you multiply that by the low press coverage of the overall crisis of missing and murdered Natives, it's doubly difficult to reach an audience. And she's not just trying to raise awareness for Matthew's case. She's working to help find other people's relatives as soon as they go missing, and work to support new and better legislation. Rhonda has formed a small group, Two Medicine MMIP, with several other women in the Browning area. They've been funding their own searches, but will be seeking outside funding soon. So far, they have located three missing people. Rhonda wants to see inclusive approaches to raising MMIP awareness. She told the Cutback Pioneer Press, quote, whenever we hold a vigil or walk, the Lorings and myself invite one another. It's not because of indigenous women and men. It's because we want to find justice for our loved ones, Matthew and Ashley. Men are no different. They also bleed and cry and face fear. Can you imagine what was going through my nephew's mind while they were beating him? and whatever else they did to him. We also need our young boys and men represented and included as missing, murdered, and indigenous men. The Pioneer Press reported that, quote, they now have a national helpline for men and boys who are victims of domestic abuse. It's been launched by the Waterford Group Men's Development Network. Rhonda told the paper, quote, don't get me wrong, I meet a lot of beautiful ladies that lost a sister, a daughter, a granddaughter, or a mother who are with the group Missing, Murdered, and Indigenous Women. I know these ladies will join and support me, just as I stand and support them. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast—
1: LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply.
0: So far in this episode, we've mentioned Matthew's cousin, Tara Walker Lyons, a few times now. Tara is an advocate and the force behind Montana Bill HB 298 better known as Tara's Law. Per the Missoulian, the law requires that Montana join 45 other states that already have taken the step to require that information about childhood sexual abuse be taught in the schools. The bill was initially passed, but without funding, which meant it did not include any funding to develop a curriculum or hire people needed to provide training. Tara has sought to provide resources that might help children who are experiencing abuse and give them in-school resources, and also give teachers the power of a curriculum. But she's kept pushing for programs. In December 2018, she hosted an official Missing and Murdered Indigenous People event in Browning. KRTV reported that the event was a workshop, and that Tara explained that, quote, families were given a voice to discuss the helplessness they feel over their loved one's death, or disappearance and frustration over the lack of information shared by investigators. Matthew and Ashley's families were both in attendance, and in-depth presentations were given on their cases, including a timeline covering the days leading up to Matthew's disappearance, down to his hourly social media posts. This was assembled by a volunteer. But in addition, Tara called for action too. In a separate KRTV article, Tara explained, quote, We aren't going to be taken seriously. I know my family had mentioned that they would be provided information. They felt like that information was not followed through on. And another KRTV interview quoted Tara too, quote, With Ashley's disappearance, coupled with my cousin Matthew's death, we need someone to do something. Justice is something that seems so close, yet so far away for everybody. For all the cases we've discussed over these past two episodes, Arden Pepian, Leo Wagner, Ashley Loring Heavy Runner, Matthew Rattlesnake Grant, there has been no resolution. And Matthew's family, both maternal and paternal, has continued to face the ongoing effects of his violent murder and his open case. We told you of his mother Eileen's passing. Rhonda also explained the effects that she personally experienced and that other deaths in the family soon followed Matthew's. Just to note, the following clip may be disturbing to some listeners. It contains brief but specific mention of suicide.
1: It really affected us dearly. Um, when Matthew was missing, I broke out with hives. They were very severe. I didn't know what was going on. I thought I was rejecting my knee. I had to go to ER several times, and they asked Gordon, what's going on with her life? And he said, well, one thing her, her nephew's missing. And they said, well, that's what's happening. That's why she has hives. I have scars all over my arms, inside my hands from the hives. And right now, um, my family members turned to drug and alcohol, my brothers and sisters. I just lost a brother, Greg, recently He had cirrhosis. And not very long after Matthew, we found him December 31st. And 2017, December 31st, one of my nieces took her life. She hung herself. She was close to Matthew. She was reading on Facebook the cruel and rude things people were saying about him. when They had a poster uh, reward. And some of the rude remarks people were saying... Um, you know, from other places, not from here. They didn't, you know, like someone said, "Oh, it's stage." He looks like he's an actor. I mean, look at his eyebrows. You know, they were saying ignorant, rude remarks about him because maybe because he was native. I don't know. It really hurt her. It really hurt her. And yeah, that night, my sister called me about twelve. I want to say 12 by telling me that she found her daughter hung, killed herself. She was a beautiful girl. Her name was Maria Grant. So it just it just, really affected our family, and it still affects our family. And I always tell people when the person's missing, not knowing is the worst thing. It's the worst thing. It's not knowing. And you don't sleep. You cry. You can't
0: eat. Rhonda told us that it's the reason that she's felt so driven to help other MMIP families. She and her friends in Two Medicine MMIP go to the cities, searching for lost loved ones and organize local searches too.
1: Other people kind of gravitate to me. They knew what I went to, and if they have anybody missing, they'll call. And uh, what's good about it, we found um, a couple young ladies that walked away from, in like, in Spokane, from a group home, and we found them. We might my, meet myself and another friend of mine. We drove, you know, we, we took upon ourselves to go there and help the family, and
0: we did find them.
1: So I don't want anybody to go to, but we had to go to.
0: Brooke asked Rhonda what she thought could encourage a break in Matthew's case. One thing they discussed was the possibility of a larger reward. It's hard to say when that will be effective and when it won't.
1: Right now, yeah, there's a reward, but it's maybe, you know, if there's a larger number.
0: Yeah, it's hard to know what is the number that's going to to be motivating enough to break that wall.
1: You know, it's hard to say because right now, you know, Ashley Heavy Runner is still missing. Um, She went missing about seven months after my nephew was murdered, and I think hers is set at fifty thousand.
0: Wow.
1: Yeah, no one's stepping up, and no one's speaking. So I don't know what would you know would motivate them. I I I try to shame them. I post things, you know, to you know make them say, Okay, you know, like how could a person live with themselves knowing? I don't know. I have
0: no idea. A final fact to share with you about Matthew is that shortly before his death, he found out that he was going to be a father. Precisely how long before? We aren't sure. But his son wasn't born until after his murder. His cousin Tara told KRTV that he got the news, quote, not long before. Here's what Rhonda told us.
1: I don't know if you're aware of it, but my um, nephew, we, we, we weren't aware of it until um, after his death that he, um, he was going to be a father. We didn't meet the lady until, I want to say, four months after his death. She was about like um, six months pregnant, and she had a baby boy. His name is Matthew Jr., and... She lived at Browning for a short time, and she moved to, um, I think she started attending a school away from here, Matthew Jr. He looks just like his father, and Matthew never met his, his baby boy.
0: Matthew's family knows that his son will never know his father, but they hope, at least, that he will have answers. As each year passes, they worry more. Matthew's cousin, Jordan Morgan, said to KRTV in 2022, quote, you think about little brother, man. Is there any justice? Is there going to be any justice? With other MMIP cases in the area gaining international focus, most notably the 2020 disappearance of Selena Not Afraid, a 16-year-old who went missing from a rest stop and was found frozen in Bighorn County, Perhaps Matthew's case will be examined more closely, too. Unlike Matthew, Selina's death was ruled accidental, something her family has contested since the beginning, and something that is being investigated in a documentary called Murder in Bighorn. Like the families of Ashley, Leo, Arden, Matthew, and so many others, Selina's loved ones are left with questions that, so far, they feel have no satisfactory answers. Please, if you have any information that could resolve the murder of Matthew Rattlesnake Grant, contact the FBI's Salt Lake City Field Office at 833-345-7872. There is a $10,000 reward in his case. If you know of a case that should be covered on The Fall Line, there's a link to our case submission form in the show notes. Thank you for listening. The Fall Line is an independently produced show and we appreciate listener support. It allows us to do research, obtain FOIA, pay our content advisors and support and donate to the causes we care about. If you try out the products we advertise, please use our sponsor codes. It really helps. And please take a moment to rate and review our show on your podcast app of choice. If you're interested in pre-ordering my book, which covers a year of my life working on a Jane Doe case, and the world of forensic scientists who resolve unidentified persons' cases, you can find a link in our show notes. It's called Lay Them to Rest, and it's out this October. Pre-ordering the book is a big factor in its success, so I appreciate it. If you'd like to support the show and the stories we cover, join us on Patreon. We're raising Patreon funds to continue to pay for the Millbrook Twins billboard and to fund therapy for families who've been on the show. Each and every one of our patrons helps us to continue this work, and we're so grateful for your help. On Patreon, you can get early ad-free versions of our regular episodes for $5 a month. We also have occasional video live streams and blogs, which all patrons can enjoy starting at just a dollar. If you prefer Apple Premium, we've begun that feed as well. The Fall Line is written, hosted, and researched by Laura Norton, with additional research by Brian Waters, Kiana Burgess, and Michaela Morrow. Interviews by Brooke Hargrove. Produced, engineered, and scored by Maura Curry. Content advisement by Brandy C. Williams, Liv Fallon, and Vic Kennedy. And as always, our most special thanks to Liz Lipka and Sarah Turney. As of November 2022, our monthly donation is going to Season of Justice to support their testing and family grant initiatives.